Hey folks, quick thing before we get into this week's show. This week's episode with uh, Grady Hendricks on From a BOK was actually recorded uh, quite a while back. And it kept getting bumped around the schedule by other episodes that needed to be timed on certain weeks for one reason or another. And as a result, well, the episode has a little bit of outdated information in it. Is that correct, Eric? That is, that is true. This is uh, just what happens sometimes. Uh, it's not an indication of us thinking the episode's bad or not liking Grady or any of that stuff. It's really fun, as you'll you'll see. Uh, and it's fun because it's one of the more contentious episodes that we've, we've done. <laughs> yes, it is. In my memory is that we recorded this when we recorded a whole bunch of episodes. And so it was already kind of like at the bottom of a large stack. And then by the time we were ready for it, then we started having all these like time-sensitive ones, like our run on Halloween Kills Guests, which took up almost a full month. Correct. And, and all these things just, just sort of happened that kept unfortunately pushing it to the back of the the bus uh but if you do hear us like make mention of a few things in there uh that are a little outdated like this is before we had bronson pincho on the show for instance and he comes up and we talk about boy oh boy we sure love that bronson pincho it'd be great to have him on the show at some point uh, so you'll get a, a few of those and then of course the mention of grady's great book the final girl support group uh it was about to come out right when he <laughs> he uh did this appearance and it's been out now for quite a bit so there's going to be a few things that you hear in there that'll be a little outdated but the conversation itself is still uh, yes. really good. Do not be alarmed. You have not gone through a time loop. And uh, <laughs> one other thing before we uh, before we get started, uh, got to give a shout out to our benevolent overlords over at Fangoria, who have for over 40 years been absolutely killing it on the horror journalism front. In 2022, Fangoria is going to be better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. As always, these articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We don't want to give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head over to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have uh, an episode for you today that I am really excited to dig into. Um, it does not have an adaptation attached to it, so we're just going to be talking about the novel, but we could not wait around for someone to make this damn thing. So, uh, with all of that in mind, our guest today is an author, former film critic, screenwriter, and horror aficionado, truly the Swiss army knife of podcast guests. Our listeners will probably best know him for his books, Horror Store, Paperbacks from Hell, uh, or maybe last year's The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. That's a mouthful. Sorry, I, I tripped over that. Um, <laughs> or maybe as the uh, he was the co-writer on Ted Gagan's 2017 feature, Mohawk. Today, he's here to talk to us about a King novel Vespi and I cannot seem to agree on. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Grady Hendricks. Grady, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Uh, and I feel like in King fashion, you have to say something like, hello, constant reader. <laughs> well, there's another Stephen King podcast, and they say constant listeners, which uh, oh, we didn't, we didn't know about it first. And, and, and we used that a couple of times and then found out like through the grapevine, like that's their shit. And we we're like, oh, fuck. Our yeah, didn't yeah. want to step no, on no, any no. toes. Yeah. So I don't have an alternate for you. But but it's no, it's that's a, fine. I mean, it could be something folksy and many, right? Like, yeah. uh, hello, assholes and elbows or something. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't understand the assholes and elbows phrase. Like what is being communicated in that term? All in, right? I you think, like use all the parts, parts of your body to uh, to uh, accomplish yeah, a task. They say it in aliens. Ape-pong, I think it's yeah. just they sound good together. <laughs> it does it's lyrical yeah it is it's, it's, it's poetic you know, b- assholes elbows it's got a good good r- rhythm i think okay yeah. i can roll with that that's good enough for me <laughs> so uh, so the- so welcome all you assholes and elbows who listen to the show yes <laughs> i don't know uh, i don't know if that works grady you've got a, a, another book coming up this year called the final girl support group is that correct yes yeah actually uh it's coming out on july 13th um right around and the it's- corner Wait, yeah, it's like tomorrow. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, weirdly enough, that the sort of inspiration for that book came from an issue of Fango because I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies as a kid. And so after Cub Scout meetings, we'd go over to the Oasis gas station and get snacks. And I convinced our scout master, or I guess they're called a cub master. It sounds a little pedo-y. Um, that... Uh, <laughs> I was allowed to use my snack money to buy a magazine. And then I showed them like premiere and then bought Fango. And, and so I would like read the articles about the movies. This was like 81, I guess. And, uh, pretend I'd seen them so that I didn't seem like a weird, creepy kid who wasn't allowed to see R rated movies. <laughs> um, and the one that was in that ep- issue was, uh, Friday the 13th part two. And I remember being obsessed with the fact that like, holy cow, this chick survived Friday one. And like, she thinks it's just another Thursday night and she's hanging out in her apartment, talking to her mom and Jason stabs her to death. And it was so mean and so (laughs) mean spirited. Um, And uh, I was just like, and that sort of was when I started getting obsessed with like, final girls and kind of what happens outside the movie you know like you can never let your guard down man because you may think it's thursday but really it's the beginning of the sequel you know um and weirdly adrian king who played alice hardy in that does the audiobook for uh oh, final wow. girl support group oh yeah, that's yeah, cool. yeah. Oh, that's great yeah i sort of randomly sent her a copy of the book and she fell in love with it and then when they were sending me narrators for the audiobook they were all fine but like i don't know man they just didn't have a lot of they were they were doing a good job but they were doing a job and so i got the audio people in touch with adrian and she's done dialogue looping for like decades for films and television and so she like blew the doors off like i it's it's weird a friend of mine listened to her sample and was like this is intense i'm like yeah that's an that's that's an awesome thing to have have pulled off i had no idea and also i had no idea that 
like if you write a book and they're making an audiobook version, do you have do you have approval then over who reads it? Well, not always, but I've I've done pretty well with my audiobooks. And so these and so usually they'll let the author sort of listen to a few different people. Uh and, and with me, they instantly regret it because I'm like, oh no, try, let's try another one. Let's try another one. Um, but you wind up with great people like Adrian King or a woman named Carol Monda did um the audiobook for We Sold Our Souls, which is my heavy metal horror novel. And man, her voice sounds like she gargles like hot asphalt every morning. It's great. <laughs> it's funny you say that because when I was picturing myself in this position, I was thinking I'd be like Tom Waits, Tom Waits or nobody else. Maybe like you, you wrote a children's book. And I'm like, you heard what I said. Get me Waits. I want it to be. Did you get him? No, I didn't write a children's book either, though. I'm just imagining that scenario if I had to do it. Right. He'd be I guess great it's weird that in this book. scenario, I made it to where I wrote a kid's book, but no, I don't know. You know <laughs> At least you weren't a cub master. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. So I imagine you're pretty tied up right now, just, you know, working on the rollout of the book. Uh, yes, but also like I've kind of become a book a year writer by accident. So I'm also in the middle of writing the book for next year. I'm a little late on it. So it's weird. <laughs> like everyone wants to talk about the book I wrote last year. And all I care about are the evil puppets in the book for next year. So it's <laughs> it's a weird. So I'm really happy to talk about Stephen King, which is neither final girls nor evil puppets. Oh, great. <laughs> Speaking of Stephen King, we always ask our guests about their their Stephen King origin story, which is to say, you know, when King first came onto your radar as a, you know, as a writer or a presence in film, you know, what what was it for you? Man, I think for me, I don't know because I didn't read a lot of horror as a kid. I thought the covers were too gross. And Stephen King covers sort of were like pretty, pretty they were good, but they were pretty placid, right? Like Salem's Lot looked pretty evil, but like the stand, the shot, I could handle that stuff. And my clear memory is getting uh, Skeleton Crew in hardcover for Christmas in 85, and then it in hardcover for Christmas 86, and mm -hmm. really tearing through those. And then I was obsessed. And this was really the moment that cemented King for me. I was obsessed with the computer game for The Mist the story in uh, Skeleton Crew, which was a text-based game. And it was like, they just took this stuff right out of the book. It just was so goopy and gross and disgusting. I loved it. Oh, yeah. And it had a different ending. Have you ever heard the radio drama based on The Mist? I've heard that it exists, but who did it? I've, I've never heard it. Oh, I have no idea. This was, by the time that I was like reading Stephen King regularly and had started listening to audiobooks a little bit, you know, I think it had been around for a while and I, I never actually got around to it, I don't think. But they staged yeah. it like a drama with a whole cast of people is my understanding. Right. I mean, it's it's essentially like a, a, a spruced up audiobook, you know, of the like abridged audiobook of the mist. It's um, yeah. I got it because I was in the same boat as you, Scott, because I got really obsessed with audiobooks around the time Jurassic Park came out because I love the movie so much. And I read the book and then I still wanted to exist in that world. So I got the audiobook, which John Hurt uh, read. Oh, wow. And um, so I was just like looking for anything. Like I'd go to use bookstores and flea markets and look for audiobooks uh, for stuff that I liked. And uh, I found the It one on cassette. It was on a tape, a single tape, forwards and, you know, the front side and A side and B side or whatever of the tape. 
Um, and it was sold as in 3D sound because I guess it was in stereo. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's essentially just an abridged version of the, uh, you know, read of the short wow, story. Wow, they, they fit. Wait, you said it was one tape? No, no, this is uh, The Mist. Oh, The Mist. Jeez. Okay, I the missed mist. a step there. I was like, yeah, ah, that would have been a very abridged get... <laughs> version of it. <laughs> it is 90 minutes long. A young boy <laughs> got his arm torn off by a clown. Later, the clown turned into then... a spider. Then someone bit his tongue. <laughs> yeah. The end. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something about chewed. Next. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that, you know, your your parents didn't let you watch horror movies a lot. So like, when did you start having the freedom to do that? Well, you know, around the time my parents got divorced, I think I was 13. And that was around the time I started having birthday parties where a bunch of friends would come over and we'd go into the garage room and like rent horror movies and watch them. And then we'd play these super elaborate games of manhunt outside at night in like they'd sprawl over our entire suburb, you know, just miles. <laughs> and then we'd come in and watch more horror movies and go back out and play manhunt and sort of do that all night. So for me, it was like super communal, like horror movies were like what you did with friends. Right. Um, and then later I became that sort of misanthropic creep who watched them on his own. Oh no, that's all of us. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> especially <laughs> in the I'm, last year. And I'm certainly not very misanthropic, but not. not well, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm kind of a creep, too. That's fine. But, how did you but how did your version of Manhunt go? Just just out of curiosity. Oh, it was uh, like basically it was had, like one person was it or sometimes we did teams Um and that was basically it. Or it would be one person was it and they were running after you like a slasher. Or sometimes it was one person was it and you were all running after them. Like it got it just sort of was like really loosey goosey, although we did have a version called rehash where the person who was it would chew food and then like try to peg you to tag you with the chewed up with a wad of the chewed up food. It was pretty disgusting. (laughs) That version was very popular and was deeply gross. Rehash is a great name for that game, though. Yeah. Um, popcorn was the worst because popcorn you couldn't throw it far but like right. if you got hit with chewed up popcorn it just splattered everywhere yeah. like got in your hair yeah it was uh, nasty <laughs> it was sharp little kernels in there kernel shells yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Like usually Some... the good stuff was bananas and pizza <laughs> <laughs> Some... Some suburbanite looking out their window and seeing like a, a nine-year-old kid walking through the backyard at night covered in shoot up yeah. popcorn. Oh, it's happening <laughs> well, and, again. <laughs> and police, police were called often because we just go through people's yards <laughs> yeah, and no stuff. Shit. So like, <laughs> you know, it was, and that was great. Like that was part of the fun. Like, you know, we were a bunch of white kids in the suburbs. They weren't going to shoot us. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. It, right. it was fun. But like looking back on it, I'm like, ah, that's the definition of white privilege. I see. <laughs> yeah, very much so. We used to do a thing when I was a kid. We, di- we didn't play Manhunt or anything like that, though. I've heard of versions of that game. But uh, there were these big sewer tunnels in the area. Uh, Ooh. A lot like it. Lived in a, a, a nice suburb of, of Dallas. And there was a creek running alongside the housing community. And these pig- big pipes were down there. And we'd go down there like sometimes sneak out of our houses at night or just during the day and see how far we could go back in there before we got scared. That was all fine and dandy until we started doing a thing where we figured out we could, there were these side tunnels you could crawl up to be inside gutters, you know, like on the side of the street. Oh, wow. Yeah. And 
we quickly pieced together that if we had eggs with us, we could throw them at passing cars. And uh, so, yeah. we, so we did that when we were kids. That got the cops called on us. But uh, did they, they come down fu- to the sewer after y'all? No, they had no fucking idea what had happened. Um, <laughs> there were multiple times where we would come back out of the tunnels and then see a cruiser and the, like somebody's car. Most people didn't even know what had happened until they got home, you know. But there were a couple of times where where a car stopped and someone got out and started yelling. I think yeah. there was one time maybe we were started yelling back and sort of heckling the guy who had just so got egg the gutter. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. We actually had these big bunkers that were built in World War One out towards the beach. I'm from South Carolina. And uh you could get into them, you could break into them, and they were abandoned, but had these like tunnels and like going on and on and on. I mean, they were oh. crazy complicated and underground and all because like often if they were had a powder magazine in them, they'd make the hallways very narrow and very windy. So if something exploded, right, it wouldn't travel down a wide straight hallway and set the other powder magazine on fire. Oh, and wow. um I remember there was one we and we used to break into them at night, pitch dark. And uh, there was one we broke into the one we broke into the most. And um, someone had car had etched into the black paint on the concrete up at the top of the stairs. We all float down here. And that was always like, <laughs> soon in, like we were like, ah, wah. and then sweets for the sweet was the other one from candy. Oh, Man no. That someone had etched in. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, that would have made my my butthole pucker. if I was a kid. Coming across yeah, either one of those, but sweets for the sweet candy man, for whatever reason, that movie just really got me when I was a kid still does to yeah. this day. I think it's a, it's a very under the skin kind of movie. Matter of fact, I was at a friend's wedding pre pandemic and, uh, I sat next to Virginia Madsen. It just happened. Oh, wow. Happenstance. I guess she was friends with one of the, the parties and I sat there for like the first 10 minutes, like making small talk. And then eventually I turned to her and I'm like, listen, I just got to say that, you know, I think Candyman's still one of the scariest fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> and she, What'd she, she was super into, into it. No, oh, she was like, Oh yeah, no, it's, it's great. I love talking about Candyman. I'm so proud of that one and blah, blah, blah all that stuff. And she was like, wow. super into it, but I was worried it was going to be a weird thing, but it was one of those things where I think she clearly knew that I recognized her, but it was an unspoken thing and it was just making the small talk weird so i'm like i'm just gonna lay this out that i know who you are and you know you terrified me when i was a kid so <laughs> thanks <laughs> yeah. but i feel like i feel like the quest for the butthole pucker is such a part of being a kid right like it really oh, for is. sure like you want and it, and that's one of the, one of the things that's always so great when you're with people you're like you push each other past that point you know like if i'd been alone and go into those bunkers i would have turned tail and run but right. like we made ourselves each other go down there I, I get the impression that, I mean, like if I had kids today, I wouldn't give them the freedom that I had when I was a kid, certainly. I sort of get the impression talking to other people I have who have kids and, you know, other people that have been on the show that perhaps there's a lot more uh, safety in place these days than mm. than back in the glory days when we were traipsing around sewer tunnels and right. in through neighbors' yards and into old or the, fucking world war ii barracks or something <laughs> you know? well, or, or the desire for, from kids to do this like this is something that's come up a couple of times on the show but it's like you know the kids in my life are my nephews and like they just don't they kind of live out in the boonies so i guess they don't have the option but they grew up in a in a regular old suburb and they just all they want to do is be on their phones watching youtube or all day or you know like the older ones starting to do what i did like eventually which is just you know lock yourself up and play video games all day but uh um 
I don't know. It's like, I just don't sense the, that feeling of adventure that, you know, the kids just don't go out whether they're allowed to, or, you know, I think they just so much thing, so many things to preoccupy them are around now, you know, that they, yeah. they just don't do that as much. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Because like, I'm thinking about like the missed computer game. I mean, I, I, I played it on an emulator recently and like, it's all text-based. It's like gray text on a black background. And you realize, you know, the repetitiveness of it, even as a kid, you know, you'd, you'd get the same responses that you had to give these exact, you know, spray can, you know, spray can on spider or at, you know, and, and, but I remember just being so wrapped up in it. And, you know, technology was so crappy that I feel like there was a real put. You really had to imagine it being better than it was. Like if you were playing Atari, like, or like Adventure on Atari, like that little yellow square, you had to imagine it was like, you like Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that's better but i do feel like you know there were just so many limitations that um you had to kind of like push it you know and and push yourself and we were bored you know we lived in a suburb we're bored out of our minds like you know but there was nothing to do so we'd have to make things up i'm not saying that makes us better than kids today i i'm not sure that does anything but make me sound old but i'm just saying i think (laughs) the limitations of our world forced us to sort of like come up with solutions. Yeah. Right. I think that's probably the, the correct read on the situation. Like, Hey, um, you want to go see a dead body? <laughs> <laughs> so the book you've chosen to talk about today is from a Buick Gate, which as I noted at the top of the show does not have a adaptation yet. Last we heard from Tom Jane, that's still going forward with uh, his production shingle with Jim, yeah, Mickle, Jim Mickle in the director, yeah. which is Pretty exciting because, um, well, I just want to see this movie get made. And also, uh, you know, I started watching Sweet Tooth recently, and uh, that's pretty damn good. I'm yeah, enjoying same. That show. I'm, I'm like three episodes in. I'm I'm a big fan yeah, so Jim far. Jim Nichols, yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I'd be, I'm very curious to see what he would do with it. I guess they've had some problems with uh, financing because uh, studios may not be like big time into making movies about cops right now for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine why. But for anyone that hasn't read this book, uh, Grady, would you mind telling us what's it, uh, what it's about? Yeah, I mean, at its essence, From a Buick 8 is about some state highway patrol guy sitting on a bench talking and a car sitting in a garage. That is literally <laughs> what the entire book is about. Um but 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 to sort of go into a little more detail than that, because I feel like that's a little coy of me, a, a state highway patrol unit in western Pennsylvania has uh, found a Buick road, I think a Buick roadmaster at a gas station. The, the owner got out. He walked away. No one ever saw him again. The gas station attendant called them. They came. The Buick's weird. Like the radio doesn't quite work. It doesn't see. It seems like it looks like a Buick. But it's like this thing can't run. How does this operate? Right. Like the key doesn't turn. The radio doesn't work. It's you know the exhaust. The, the engine has made no moving parts. Yeah, yeah. And so they tow it and they drop it in a storage shed and keep an eye on it. And for the next, I think, thirty years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, every now and then, it'll have these light discharges. The temperature will drop and occasionally the trunk will open and something, some weird creature that seems to be from another world will pop out of there, usually dead. Um, And this and 
And the first thing that happens, though, is one of the troopers goes missing and they think that the car has eaten him um, and it will eat someone else later. And around it, though, which is, I think, the point of the book, is a bigger story about these state troopers. Um, one of them is a guy who gets killed by a drunk driver when he's walking up the side of the road to uh, talk to a trucker he's pulled over. And his kid starts working at the barracks and wants to know more about his dad. And his dad was obsessed with this car and ran experiments on it over the years, you know, like putting a guinea pig in it and waiting to see what happened and things like that. And so it's the kid talking to someone who knew his dad and getting filled in, not just about this car, but sort of his dad's life. And that's really the book. I mean, it really is some guys on a bench talking and a car in a shed. Yeah. Now we're we're going to th- this is going to be an interesting chat because this is probably it's definitely in my top three or bottom three kings. Like I just bounce off this book every single time I try to read it. In fact, b- for this podcast is the first time I finished it. Uh, I tried two <laughs> times starting when it came out and I couldn't get halfway through the book. And now it's, it's the only Stephen King book to do this to me. Um, even like Tommy Knockers and Dreamcatcher, like I was able to chew back my apathy, I guess, and and make it through those. So I finally finished it on, on this go around and my takeaway, and I know Scott's, Scott's a fan of this, so this is going to be an interesting chat. But my takeaway from it, like it, having finished it is this is a short story. This is maybe Max a novella thing that is and my problem with it is it's stretched so unbearably thin um, without any real resolution to it. And that's, I think, the reason why I bounce off of it so hard. If this had been a story in Nightmares and Dreamscapes and it was 90 pages, I would be super into it because the whole you know concept of, a, you know, a, of like kind of a car being a, a, a gateway between realities or worlds or dimensions you mm-hmm. know all, all that stuff is really fun to me but like i don't give a shit about any of the troop d characters i really don't like i get the, their names mixed up they're not really distinct um you know so this book for me is is uh like definitely one of my least favorite um even something like tommy knockers there's like little sections where I can grab onto and get really riveted by like um, the whole uh, sequence where the, the little boy makes his brother disappear and uh, you know, and, and the reality of that brother, like slowly suffocating to death on a for, you know, on a, a planet a billion miles away. Cause he's teleported him there. You know, it's like uh, you know, all that stuff I, I find really interesting and there's just not that hook in this, this book for me. Grady, do you want to, do you want to weigh in? Yeah. You know, it's interesting, right? Like, There's two things about this book I find really fascinating because it's not one of my favorite King novels, but there's two things about it that make it really fascinating. And one is that it's a book about the things going on around what's in the book. I mean, throughout the book, there's this tension between this cop, uh, Sandy, I think is his name, telling the story and this kid, uh, I think his name's Ned, right? The kid, Mm -hmm, the guy's son. Yeah. Ned, the kid. Because Ned wants to hear about the car. He's like, what happens with the car? What comes out of the trunk next? Oh, my God, it's an extra dimensional fish. That's disgusting. You know, what did my yeah. dad do with the car? Did he did he take videotapes? You're like, oh, my God, a monster came out of the car and like had tentacles. Yeah. And Sandy keeps trying to tell him about picnics, the troop, bar- the barracks went on together <laughs> and weddings and drunk driving accidents and a shootout of the O'Day brothers. 
and and the kid's like, no, no, man, I, I you shut shut the hell up, old man. I want to hear about the next thing and the next thing because the kid's looking for some answer about his dad, yeah. and he thinks it's in the car. You know, something mm-hmm. about the mystery of this car will connect him with this mystery of who his dad was, and. Sandy is trying to tell him, no, it's not the car. It's the life that was happening around it. Like we went years without even thinking about the car. And there's a really interesting anecdote because around this time, Stephen King also wrote on writing. And there's a really interesting anecdote on writing when he talks about how when he got successful and he moved into the house, that big house with the fence, you know, that he lived in for a long time, he got this big desk. He always wanted this big giant desk. He got this big desk in his office. And then he was basically like wrote a bunch of books on it and was just stoned for years. And he's like, when he sobered up, you know, I guess the first time um, he got rid of the desk and like his kids started coming into his office and hanging out with them. And like, you know, and, and he put his desk over in the corner and it's a very like clunky metaphor for, you know, the, the thing you think is so important. It's in the middle of the room. That's wrecking your life. Put that Mm. thing over on the side and let your life happen. Like, the the writing's not there. The life's not there to support the writing. The writing's there to support the life, you know? Mm-hmm, and right. so the Buick's not there. The the barracks isn't there to support the story of the Buick. The Buick's there to help tell the story of the barracks. But this is a really interesting time in King's life because there's another period like this when he sobered up, you know, and you have a string of books starting with Tommy Knockers, which was probably the last one he wrote high. And then The Dark Half, which was the first one he wrote sober, and then Four Past Midnight, and then Needful Things. And they're all really weird, awkward books. Like, I mean, like The Dark Half is really laborious and tough. And, and King even said, I, I was scared I couldn't write sober. And the Tommy right. Knockers, wanted, Four Past Midnight is just his least successful, I think, you know, uh, collection of four novellas, because he's done a few of them. And Needful Things, I know some people like it, but it, it feels very by the numbers King to me. Um, and then he sort of gets his mojo back. And so Right around the time he wrote the, and this is what weirds me out. He wrote the first draft of Dreamcatcher, or sorry, of From a Buick 8. And then Hmm. he got hit by a car, right? It was like uh, July of 99. He got hit by the guy riding the van and basically Mm -hmm. went through this laborious rehab process where he again got addicted to, I think, some kind of painkiller and had to kick that. And while he was high, he wrote Dreamcatcher, uh, and and then he wrote On Writing and finished that. And then he came back to From a Buick 8, and then he wrote The Colorado Kid. And it's really mm. interesting. You look at From a Buick 8 and The Colorado Kid, and they're both books about unsolvable mysteries and sort of how storytelling doesn't work. From Buick 8, it's like, there, listen, what you want isn't here. There is no climax. There is no exciting ending. There is no point. It's just life. It just happens. There's no arc or structure to it. And that's The Colorado Kid, too, which is another book about some old people telling a young person a long story about a mystery of this dead guy on a beach where there's no resolution. It just ends with the mystery. So I'm fascinated by this book because it's a weird book about how storytelling doesn't work and it's a failure and it's not real and it's useless. And he wrote it with the Colorado kid, another book about that. And he wrote it at a time in his life when he was really going through some kind of crisis. And just the last thing I'll say is the weirdest thing to me is the book opens with the, a really vivid account of this cop pulling over on the side of the road 
walking up the shoulder of the road and getting hit by a drunk driver who's bending over to get a beer out of his cooler and basically like completely destroyed, which is exactly what happened to King, like point by point after he wrote the first draft of this book, man, writing his Mm. magic. (laughs) I agree with everything that everyone just said. I, um, I don't, I don't feel that like to your point, Eric, I feel that I feel like this would work better as a novella, but the thing about this to me is that all the shit with the car is so cool to me. And I'm going to have to talk about this in very childlike terms because the, the way I feel about this book is very childlike. All of that shit, a, a big shiny car pulls up in front of a gas station driven by one of the low men, by the way, you know, which is a detail. Oh, of like a, yeah, you're right. You're like right. A, a throwaway detail in this thing, which I love that that's in there, you know, or how the uh, the gas station attendant says that he, you know, he says like fill her up or something. And he's got like a Boris Badenoff voice that really right. stuck with me because then I'm thinking like, are the low men like learning how to talk by watching Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons? Like what the fuck is going on there? Um <laughs> But I but I love how outsized and ridiculous this conceit is. It is a car that cannot actually drive, but it also its trunk is a portal to another dimension that sometimes spits things out and it ends up, you know, defying all laws of physics as we know them. And where does it end up? But in a barn run by people who are very lawfully minded. It's their job to keep order. And this thing is just a, a pure agent of chaos in the center of all that. And I love all the creature shit. Endlessly fascinated by that. The the the, the astronaut thing that comes out and it's got a little like walkie-talkie or something, you mm-hmm. know, that it ultimately disintegrates. But the scenes where uh, uh, Ned's dad is just obsessing over what's coming out of the car and like sort of documenting its progress and and documenting the the light quakes that happen while it's in the barn. That sort of compulsive fas- fascination towards this unknowable thing, uh, I feel that exact same thing whenever it gets to those segments in the book. Now, granted, you know, there's a lot of bullshit with the cops in between all those like, <laughs> like the peaks of this book are whenever shit starts going wild with the car, right? Whenever it's not in one of those peaks, it's I, I fully agree. It's like, okay, let's get to the good stuff. What's going on in the barn? You know, I don't, I don't need to know about those picnics. Uh, so I, I I do agree with that. Um, certainly doesn't need to be almost 500 pages, but I find something fascinating about it. And it's it's just that childlike feeling of being obsessive about the unknown and wanting to understand it. And also, I just like creature shit. This man's right. dissecting a bat. You know, I'm I could not be more thrilled. And then when the thing with the tentacles comes out, I love that. I love you know, eventually when they're dangling through the trunk into like another world and, you know, you get a quick glimpse of this thing that reminds me of them going to, you know, when uh, one of the characters gets a, a brief glimpse of Altair 4 in in mm-hmm. the Tommy knockers. You know, that's another thing that kind of like set my imagination on fire. So that's what I'm bringing to the table in terms of why I enjoy this book so much. I well, readily it's... agree. I would not I would not recommend it to most people. Because I don't think most people would like this book, but it's definitely not like bottom tier king to me. Well, then what would be bottom tier king? Oh, I would have to go look at a list. 
Yeah. Oh man, I, I because I, I, to I, me it's for sure. In I the, mean, the bottom catcher, third. There's no, there's no question. Like if you're asking my number one like worst pick, I, yeah. I don't know that off the top of my head, and I would have to weigh some options. But I'm right. thinking it's probably Dreamcatcher. Well, bottom yeah, tier I mean, doesn't I've mean got, like the absolute yeah. worst he's written. I just you know definitely it's not something you would ever consider in like the top third best king works. Yeah, like we can yeah. all agree on that. <clears throat> yeah, this is this is the argument I always had with people when. You know, when I was writing online and I would do my year end top 10, I was very careful to always use the word favorite and not best, Hmm. you know, in a in a race to determine the best of a thing. You know, a lot needs to be taken into consideration if you're going to project that sort of a list to the masses. You know, you're you're putting a stamp of approval on it and saying that these are like. These hit all the things that a uh, all the bullet points that a movie should should hit to be a great film, right? But I also like some trash films, you know? Mm-hmm. The year Triple X uh Return of Xander Cage came out, I put that on my top 10. Cuz I saw that in the theater and I had a fucking blast. It was the dumbest goddamn thing I saw that year, but man, you can't argue with a good time at the movies. So no, I would not list this as one of his best books or anything close to it in in that scenario, but it is one of my favorites. It's probably in my top 10 favorites. That uh- is absolutely insane to me but i uh, uh i totally <laughs> funnily enough like we all agree on almost everything like everything grady said is totally right on and you know on the uh on the nose you like hit it, it that's exactly what the book is it's about uh you know you're not going to get any answers which by definition is going to make it an unfulfilling read which makes it fascinating but it's also it makes it frustrating. You know, it's like there there's, I don't need to have all the answers to everything when I'm reading uh, a story like this. Um, hence my love for the convoluted, uh, mess slash awesome jumble of, of greatness. That is the dark tower series. Um, but I guess to me, it's the character, like the characters just aren't well drawn enough for me to give a shit. Like I don't really, aside from what you said about, you know, uh, you know, the the son kind of mirroring his father's obsession with the car. I, I can't name you any of the, the people, you know, in uh, Troop D. I just they're all so yeah, they, similar. And there's a Swedish guy. There's one that's Swedish. You know, it's like there you can do that, you know, on the base level. But they're, they're all they're, there's no conflict there. There is no uh, real differential uh, to the characters. Like and if you look at like the dark tower series, you look at the body, you look at any, it, anything where there's like a giant cast of, of people dealing with, you know, grappling with something larger than themselves. Like they're all very individualized and specific and you know exactly who they are. They're unique characters. And I don't get that with this book. And I think that's probably the thing that even though I can agree with you on, on, you know, how interesting it is from, you know, a Stephen King nerd perspective and where it falls in his, bibliography um i think the thing that that keeps me totally distanced from this is i don't recognize the characters i don't give a shit about them you know i'm not connecting to them in any way and that's usually king's strongest suit even mm-hmm. in in books of his that i don't like i'll i'll connect with the characters and I, like i do with dreamcatcher like i even those guys you know are distinguishable um yeah. and so i think that's probably where where this book really loses me is i just for whatever reason the characters just don't pop for me it's interesting because I feel like King, you know, the, if you if you boil this book down, it's a long sort of meandering book 
uh, about that takes place over a long period of time, almost someone's lifetime. And it ends with sort of a glimpse into another dimension. And the concept of death kind of really hangs over the whole thing. That is a book that King did, I think, much more successfully, but it's another really divisive King book, which is Revival. Oh, uh, exactly. I, I, was just th- I was just thinking of that yep. when, when you were mentioning that. I'm like, he yeah. did it better there. I mean, this, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, he really did. And I think one of the big things with Revival that's different is something you just put your finger on, Eric, which is that Revival's about one guy. And there's other characters and there's the reverend or whatever who he's sort of in opposition with, but it's about a guy. And this book, man, I agree with you. I can't tell any of these people apart. Like, there's the one who's the alcoholic who, like, kills himself. There's the kid who lost his dad. There's the other guy who's kind of obsessed with everything. There's the dog. Uh, And there's the guy with the annoying Swedish accent. Yeah. But, like... But like it's and I feel like with the revival, there's one compelling main character. And that's why it's so much more successful for me. Right. And narratively from Buick 8 jumps between their perspectives. And this is something when I was talking with Scott about it about halfway through the reread, um, like I didn't even grasp that that's what the 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 thing was. I was I was going back through it via audiobook. And uh, they have multiple narrators and they have multiple narrators because the the book shifts perspective a lot. And I think the problem is that each person whose perspective we go in has the exact same voice, with the exception of later on in the book, the uh, receptionist gets gets a a bit and all she's and all she's worried about is, you know, getting shit spilled on her blouse or something, which is like the most yeah, like exactly. <laughs> the, 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 the most like weirdly, you know, like, come on, come on, Steven, you got to do a little bit better. in in the in the new millennium, my man, you can't write your your lone female character to just be the person who gets upset because somebody spills some shit on her, her new blouse that she spent thirty five dollars on. <laughs> I don't think um, there can be any doubt that, you know, the characters here are thinly drawn and unmemorable, you know. I would even even right now, I've got a, a page open on Wikipedia, you know, uh, in case I need to refer to a character's name um, because they are they are so thinly drawn and they are so similar to one another or interchangeable based on the needs of the plot. Um, I just don't in this is a very rare situation where I don't care. I don't care because I love <laughs> I love all the weird shit so much that it overpowers my sense of boredom with the other parts of the story. None of the you characters love the 20% are the where something happens in the book enough yeah, basically, to basically. justify getting through the 80% of people sitting around and drinking coffee. Yeah. Correct. That is right. All right. And it's well, just, it's something about, you know, the combination of, you know, extra dimensional portals and creatures and the man's obsession with it. And, you know, how it even arrived there in the first place. Like that through line is enough to carry me through this book. I'm telling, this is a rare thing for me. Like any other fucking book, you know, I would have a problem with this, but, but this, the, the conceit of it, like I said earlier, is so weird and just, just like over the top that I can't, I can't help it. I like it. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because one of the things I feel like really, makes this book not dismissible for me. Because, like, there's some King books I just, I got no time for. Uh, Christine could care less. You know, Rose Matter, Insomnia, whatevs. But King will occasionally, you can feel, for me at least, I f- imagine that I can feel when his when he really finds something that 
fires him up that he wants to talk about. And, you know, it's like, and, and it may be in a less successful book, but like, I'm not a huge fan of Dr. Sleep, but the stuff in that book with Danny Torrance talking about his sobriety, you can tell that King cares about those scenes so much, and he writes them Mm -hmm. so well. Uh, Joyland is another King book I don't really love that much, but you can tell King really wants to write about what it feels like to be a heart-sick, heartbroken kid getting over it. Like, that stuff in there is so well done. And I feel like with this book, he really wants to have this dialogue about his own books almost, you know, like, like you can't just skip around, man. I'm trying to tell you something here. Don't just go to the monster bits. Like, I'm trying to to Mm. talk to you about something, about life. And And I feel like, you know, he came out of a when he wrote the first draft of this, he was, from my point of view, coming out of a period where he was really on fire. I mean, he wrote The Green Mile, Desperation, Bag of Bones, Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon and Hearts in Atlanta, sort of. And then the first draft of From a Buick 8 right before he got hit by that van. And he, he, you know, that's one a year. That's a lot. And I feel like that core of the story was probably there in that first draft because then you can feel him sort of fumbling around, right? With Dreamcatcher and Colorado Kid and Cell and Lisey's story, trying to get his feet back under him, you know? Um, So I, I find that part of it, how this intersects with King's life and sort of that he really had something he wanted to say here. He's not just churning. He's not just typing. He really wants to talk about this this kind of storytelling and what matters. And and I agree, though, it's not a book I'd put in my top tier, but it's one I can't dismiss because there is some fascinating stuff in it to me. So let's say you find yourself in the exact position as one of these cops in Buick 8. You know, one day this thing shows up at your place of work and it's been, quote unquote, safely locked in a barn. You know, like, how do you think you would react to it? Would you be frightened of this thing or would you just be compelled by it constantly? Like, like, how do you, how do you think you would react to being confronted by a thing that unknowable? Oh, I drive myself crazy trying to figure out the rules and doing those. For real, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would spend all day fucking with, I'd get fired. I'd get fired <laughs> from being a cop from that from that fucking police station. Be like, well, that was one of the things with the book. I kept being like, well, did they try this? Why didn't they try this? I, I don't understand. And and would this increase for you, Grady, do you think, once things started like popping out of it? Or Yeah, absolutely. So at no point in the story, as written by King, would you have bailed out on the situation? You're like, you're in it till till you find out whatever the fuck Till is the, with this thing. I would be in that car with a can of gas and a gun, you know, right <laughs> up to that point. I mean, I'm in all the way. Eric, what about you? How do you think you would react to the Buick 8? Uh, same. I mean, it's like it, it, one, one thing that I, I do appreciate about the book, even though I don't enjoy reading it, is how they make the supernatural mundane and how it is just what it is at a certain point. And I, I think that there's even a little p- uh, part in there where the the kids like, how are you? What do you mean? You guys just like let it sit for a year. It's like what? Like, you know, this thing happens like, well, we have a job, man. Like we're you know, we're just doing our, our job and our job, you know, with the car is just to kind of keep an eye on it as long as the temperature doesn't drop and it doesn't shit out some, you know, some weird plant, you know, um, you know, we'll, we just go about our daily lives. And there's something that rings true about that. Like there's the the most bizarre, crazy, 
you know, thing you can think of, you know, is just somebody's day to day, right? You know, some some dude goes up and like chops the tops off of, you know, 800 feet trees, you know, that's just what he does, you know, and mm-hmm. he knows it's dangerous. And, you know, he just, you know, deals with with it as, as uh, he needs to. So it's personally, of course, yeah, I'd be I'd be fascinated by it. And I'd always be probably multiple times a day, be keeping an eye on that uh, thermometer and just kind of dreading and hoping to see it drop because I'd be very curious what the next thing to come out would be. Um, uh, especially, you know, at the beginning when everything that's coming out is, is dead. Right. So like at, at the beginning, it's not really threatening. And then, you know, something does make it out that's alive and, you know, that becomes a big ordeal, <laughs> um, and stays alive for, you know, for a little bit, at least, um, uh, I don't know. I think, you know, uh, I think, of course, anything strange and unusual is going to grab your attention and be your obsession. Yeah, that, that would I, I be do, me as well. I do want to talk about that, uh, that sequence in the book when the, uh, the thing comes out of the trunk that they all beat to death, yeah. I think is, is my favorite sequence in the whole book. You know, you know, this is, this is, and this is the astronaut, right? Or is this the tentacle monster? I think they're one and the same, aren't they? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I'm thinking of the the very tall thing, thin. The very thing. tall thing that screams. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, okay. I think I and thought they when beat, they looked they in the trunk. Death. Yeah, I thought when they looked in the trunk after that, they saw the radio, and the assumption yeah, they, was, yeah, it yeah, had the radio like, with it. Yeah, exactly. And then he's like kind of right. moving around the barn, and then just like kind of takes up space in a corner, getting the lay of the land, and that's when they come in and and kill it. And I think that King writes that sequence with such ferocity and this this idea that you know as as human beings we will just utterly destroy like chop it to fucking pieces if we don't Mm -hmm. understand it and there's something really poignant in in that sequence is yeah as odd as that may sound um given the fact that it's like you know pretty nightmarish and you know it's like six guys with like gardening hose or something like ripping this thing to pieces. But it's, uh, it was like a pickaxe, wasn't it? Like he used the, the ax part of yeah, the pickaxe. Yeah. 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 That's what he it starts with a pickaxe and then everyone jumps in with like rakes and hose. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and, but there's also this thing cause, uh, the dog, you know, goes in and, and bites it first and it's fighting with yeah. the dog and like hurting the dog. So then by doing that, you're making, everybody reading it go fuck that thing up you know that dog's hurting you know even though right, the thing right. the dog attacked this thing right so but it's hurting this dog and he's describing the yelps and the smoke coming from its muzzle as he's you know biting into this and the blood's like setting him like almost on fire or whatever the hell's happening you know and all this stuff and so he puts you into that position where you're like fuck this thing up but then he does something really interesting uh, as a writer and uh, maybe Grady, you can talk about, you know, this perspective shift and, and you know, right. And maybe in regards to your own work, but then he switches perspective. Essentially, he turns on the empathy, right, where suddenly they start thinking, well, all this thing saw was these giant hulking figures, you know, trying to kill it and beating it to death. And, in you know, what they read in the, its eyes were like confusion and and like, you know, just desperate you know, fighting for its life, trying to survive, you know, thing. And he like, he, he goes into this whole thing where it's just like, yeah, this, this, this monster that, you know, everybody's afraid of that you've just been rooting for to die is, 
really it's just its own thing that's just trying to live and it you know maybe wasn't even intending to hurt anybody anyway and is just as confused about what happened to it and where it is as it would have been if one of our troop d people you know had gone through you know this this trunk into whatever the other dimension was and i i agree this is the, this is the the only part of the book where i kind of perked up a new attention when i got to it um because it's visceral because it's complicated and you know in the messaging that it's trying to show and it, it it's the first time where i like really was invested in anything going on in the book and and honestly the last time that i was invested in anything going on in the book uh but yeah for sure this is a highlight for me well you know it's interesting right king does something here well one thing is can we just say ball or move to kill the dog dude like yeah. I, I I killed a dog in my best friend's exorcism. I'll never do it again. People hate you for <laughs> killing an imaginary dog. <laughs> right. So like the dog dying. Well, and, and just real quick, the way he does it is is Awful. it's not like the dog dies in this fight. It's like the dog is so injured in this fight that it slowly dies over hours, like agonizing hours it where he's describing from the, the dog inside. Like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he's like smoking. You're right. He's like smoking from the inside and like smoke's coming out of his like eyes and it's whining and like stumbling to fall. It's like he he doesn't just kill the dog. He fucking tortures that dog. Before yeah. He dies. But King also does something here that he does a lot. And it it always weirds me out where in a lot of Stephen King books, like because the monster doesn't really do anything like you were just saying, the dog attacks the monster, right? Evil is ugly ugliness is evil in king's books like they get this sense of evil from this thing they sense all these evil intentions they say but really it's just ugly and it's the same thing with the dude who like beats his girlfriend in this they go on and on about how ugly he is and like the zits on him and on her and the gas station attendant who runs over the guy's dad who we sort of get this like backstory for he's stupid and really ugly and picks his nose. And like, that's something that King does over and over and over again. Like he's such a good writer about blue collar characters, but if they're, if they're, if they're really evil, they are like subhumanoids. They like, you know, live in a, live in an ocean of their own farts and they've always got pimples popping on their face and they pick (laughs) their nose and eat it. Like, King really and it's a real like old melodrama thing which is and I'm amazed because and I'm not saying this is a slam on anyone but like I'm amazed he gets away with it so much he gets away with it with me I'll finish a book and go man that monster was evil and then I'll be like wait it was just ugly like (laughs) that was it (laughs) it's as great it's crime being fugly but that's always been this weird thing with King if you're really ugly you're probably evil and vice versa I'm trying to think if I agree with that or not but I'm not coming up with any I'm not I'm not coming up with any examples that might discount this theory. <laughs> you well, know what I mean? Rose the Rose the Hat in in Doctor Sleep is is described is, as fairly beautiful and alluring. Yeah. Um uh and you know uh, Randall Flagg is is never described as being particularly ugly and he's one of the most evil. Right. And those are two really really like yeah, really uh big exceptions but like think about uh what's his name in firestarter the native american guy that george c scott plays right and they go on about how repulsive he is yeah and in salem's lot the like people who live in the lot who are like the really bad ones who like hit their babies and all the adults and parents in dairy yeah you're right yeah there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the dad Um, in cujo who owns cujo is like super uggo yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and Carrie, Carrie herself, even though she's a sympathetic yeah. villain, you know, bad guy, you know, she's in the book described as being, you know, fat and pimple faced and, you know, and yeah, uh, just off putting. So, yeah. 
so yeah, it's not every time in every character, but it's just one of those weird things I've really noticed with him is that like, they just go hand in hand. One of the things also that occurred to me a little with this book is, you know, King's always made himself out to be this realist writer in the realist tradition, right? His, he's a big fan of Jack London. He talks about how reading London and sort of the other early American realist in, in college were the writers who really fired him up about writing. But there's a subset of that school of realist writing that I think King, after reading this, I feel like King really fits into because he talks a lot about how um, tortured he was to try to get Western Pennsylvania right and get it to feel right. And King has this real like regionalist thing, which was sort of this subset of realism where it was like a place and its dialect and its history and the people who live there and how it looks all are really as important as the story. And like, if you're looking at supernatural, like, uh, regionalist writer, H.P. Lovecraft is one, definitely, you know, that the way he Mm -hmm. writes about New England. And King really is too. Um, And and I thought it was really evident this because he was outside of Maine writing about Western Pennsylvania. And it's obviously such a struggle for him and so important to get the slang right and the the food right and the snacks right and the, the world right. Oh, and also one other thing I was going to say is when this book came out, all the talk was King said it was going to be his last book. Um, I don't that was all that. His, yeah, that was his big PR thing, which and I don't think he meant it as a PR stunt. But yeah, he was going around doing interviews and being like, yeah, I'm a, I'm he was doing the press tour for Buick. And he's like, I'm retiring from writing. He's like, I, I can't yeah. I'm not going to retire from writing, but I'm going to retire from publishing um, yeah. and I'll write stuff, I but I may that. not put it out. Yeah. And, um, you know, then he wrote like a book a year for the <laughs> next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, yeah. <laughs> Understanding that we all agree that the characters are uh, stretched very thin in this. How do you all feel about its odds at being adapted into a, a movie that's, you know, worth a damn? Uh, I Low. think that it's. Well, I'm kind of on the opposite spectrum of that because I think that it depends on the approach because kind of like how the the idea is you don't remake a great movie. You remake, you know, a good movie or an okay movie that missed its mark. Like, I I think that there is a way to take what works here and just kind of up the character a bit and and uh, using what works, which, you know, we most of us agree is the if not all of us agree is the, you know, the idea around this car and what it represents and the fact that it's a portal and and you, the mystery of what's going to come out next. I think all that's very appealing and can work in a film. Honestly, they just need to make the characters like better. Like I think you, if you like kind of focus on what I personally feel King failed at here in this book and, you know, make uh, characters that you give a shit about, then I think that you're already halfway home to making a decent uh, movie. Um, and I think if you, as long as you limit it, you know, to try to put like a 90 minute limit on yourself on this thing, um, you could just really streamline it. Like, I think that this actually could be, especially with somebody like Jim Mickle attached, you know, who's obviously has a talent with character and using shorthand visual shorthand to make characters distinct. Um, I think, uh, this stands a chance of being something that I actually like better than the book. I tend to agree. The thing's 500 pages long. You know, just naturally, you're going to have to trim that down. And the obvious things that would have to be removed from it are the things that we've already identified as a problem. Yeah, I, I, I do think there are good odds that it'll that it'll pan out, um, especially with someone like Mickle involved. You know, if this was some director I had never heard of or 
I don't know from people that, you know, Tom Jane is is quite a character, uh, to say the least. But also he has a genuine love for Stephen King, you know, um, with with this particular creative team in place. I think it I think it stands better odds than if it was just like some people I had never heard of were making this movie. If it was like some cheapy sort of, you know, like like dimension thing that was coming out back in the in the early 90s or something. Right. But Grady, well, you, you, know, you don't think that this this might might work? Listening to y'all talk, I'm a little more sold. I mean, because you are right. Usually what makes a good movie is a short story or a novella, not a novel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and right, sure. like you were pointing out earlier, this is pretty much a novella stretched out to a novel length. I think the things that would have to change would make it very different, but maybe not worse. I mean, like y'all said, the character, we'd have to have better characters. You know, they just, they need some more meat on their bones. But also, things would have to line up. The car would have to cause the dad's death somehow. You know, you just, you just can't have the dad die randomly and have maybe nothing to do with the car. Even if it's just like he was so dazed from dealing with the alien that he stepped in front of an 18 by accident. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the kid would have to be a character who's joined the barracks. He couldn't just be a teenager raking leaves there. He'd have to be a, a he's joined the force to follow in the footsteps of his dad. He'd have to get obsessed with the car, start running the experiments, which seem to be waking it up again and making right. it less dormant. And it would have to be about somehow saving him from the same fate as his dad, him being able to right. walk away no. in a way his dad and that would didn't. make the. And the, that would make the troop D people more interesting because they're they're now an obstacle for him, but for reasons that because they know the more that they tell him about the reasons why they're being an obstacle for him in this this crazy car, it, you know, would only make him more obsessed with the car. Like that to me, that's yeah. way more interesting than than yeah. how it how it is now, where it's just like yeah, I'm going to tell you a story in pieces and I'm going to tell you the the good stuff whenever I get around to it, just because you know it's like yeah, you know, and, and also, that would be more appealing to me. Yeah. And also, I think one of the things they'd have to do is Troop D would have to pay a price for keeping this car. It couldn't just be, oh, it's in the shed just sitting there and occasionally the you know stuff happens. It would have right. to be this kind of subtle effect that it's causing bad things to happen in their lives. Like, you know what I mean? It's causing like slowly over time, people are committing suicide, becoming out like they, were, they would have to be paying a price to hold Getting on to this. Getting slowly irradiated by it or something. Yeah, right. yeah, because in the they do mit, King kind of gives out a little lip service by saying like, you know, what are we going to do with this car? We turn it over to the government. They'll find a way to make it a weapon. We turn it into a, a publicity thing. You know, it's going to ruin a lot of lives. We are going to be the guardians of this thing and keep it secret, but they have to pay a price for it for the movie to really work, I think. The the whole concept of like, did they think of destroying it like plays heavily in the the final act with getting the kid to take that step himself to try to destroy it and and mm-hmm. by making that step is like playing right into the car's hands there's yeah. got to be something more than just them saying yep the, it doesn't get dirty you know and it seems yeah. to be resistant to damage or it'll heal itself you know it's got it's got to be a little bit more you know carpenter's christine almost right you know yeah. where anything that they do to the car just instantly fixes itself and there's nothing they can they can do because it's not something that really exists on this plane, you know, it's kind of in this thing that's halfway in between our reality and another. So it is physically there, but it's not, 
it doesn't abide by the same rules of yeah of uh physical stuff in our in our world yeah you know there needs to be a little bit more there i mean you can play up the mystery of it like i i really do think that this stands a chance of of being yeah. a, a much more streamlined and interesting story as a movie for sure yeah and you know i can really see listening to you talk i can really see this being a thing where they play with the idea that the car has dormant phases and active phases and it's in a dormant yeah. phase. The kid, you know, hears that somehow this car had to do with his dad's death, tries to fuck it up. The car can't be fucked up. And that's what wakes it up again into an active phase, right. you know? So yeah, and, I'm convinced. And like, Y'all convinced yeah, me. And a stronger. Okay, good. <laughs> I want to see this movie. Yet another yeah. King cast exclusive. Before we, we wrap up, like, we don't we we've had a, a few authors on recently, but, you know, most of our guests tend to be like comedians and actors and, and uh, uh, directors and filmmakers and stuff. Um, and you, you check off a lot of the uh, a lot of the boxes. But like, I'd love to just real quick ask you from an, you know, a writer perspective, a novelist perspective. Um, I'm always curious. What have you taken from King himself? You know, just I know from my perspective, even just the the blogging stuff that I've done and just the whatever creative writing stuff I've done, like I can't help but like find like little bits that I know I l- I've lifted from obsessively reading King over the years, just in how I write a sentence yeah. or how I give information. Is is that something that you find as you you know been you know pulling the Stephen King trope of pumping out a novel every year? Like, is there <laughs> is there something you find where you've leaned on on any of that stuff, either consciously or subconsciously? Yeah, you know, it's funny, like my, and 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 I apologize, because you probably realize I talk way too much. But my relationship with King is really weird. Like, when I I started doing this great Stephen King reread over at tour, that took me from mm-hmm. like 2012 to like, I mean, it took me like five years. And I only and I and I read everything in order. I got through Bizarre Bad Dreams, I skipped Dark Tower, and I skipped co authored stuff. But when I started that reread, um, it was like I, I wound up reading like 36 novels. I had not yet signed a contract for Horror Store, my first novel by myself. Mm. And um, and and uh, I was actually doing the reread because I was pitching stuff to tour because they paid 50 bucks a post. And at times that like I'd make two hundred dollars in a month from tour. And that was grocery money. You know, that was right. like <laughs> that was like uh, the difference between I can go get some beers or I'm not going out this month. And. I finished doing it, I think, in 2017. I guess that's five years later. I can do math. Um, uh, <laughs> and that was around the time I, I won a, the Stoker Award for uh, Paperbacks from Hell and really had enough books under my belt where I was like, okay, I'm making a living doing this. So for that five-year period, the one my life changed a huge amount. And the constant thing in it was I was reading these big, fat fucking Stephen King novels all the mm. time. And... I developed this little tiny Stephen King that lived on my shoulder. And my <laughs> really, it, which is weird, you know, he's like on there picking his nose and stuff. My tiny Stephen King still drinks because occasionally he'll just like slug back a beer and then throw the can. Um, <laughs> but my career really mirrored a lot of his stuff. Like I didn't have an agent when I signed. And uh, for my first four books, like King didn't have an agent for his. And, um, and, and I really had all that created a lot of problems for me, you know, create a lot of problems for him. And um, I found things about his life and his career enormously comforting to me during some dark days, like him talking about books just falling apart or not working Mm -hmm. or, or ditching books and rescuing them at the last minute. And that really meant a lot to me. Um, and But one of the things that 
I have this issue with with King's writing in my life. Is King really writes in a very realist mode? This character's sitting in a chair. They get up. They cross the room. They do this. The next scene, now they're doing that. They've walked out into the front yard. And a very beat by beat by beat, this happens, this happens, this happens. And when you're writing, that can get really, really, for me, really um destructive you know it's like it's like i've got someone punching me in the head being like no you want to skip to the next scene and write the cool thing that happens with the midgets but you have to write (laughs) this person getting out of bed and putting on their clothes and getting in the car and driving to midgetville like you got to do all that stuff first and it's like oh i hate this stuff and I'll reread King a lot. I mean, I just reread The Shining because I'm writing a haunted house book. And, you know, I just reread Buick 8 to do this and uh, with you guys. And um, and I'll realize, oh, God, yeah, okay. King does tweak some of that. He does, like, just sort of take a sentence to sort of gracefully jump forward a month or jump from this place to that place. And, like, this stuff that's much more literary, you know, less, like, realist, blop, 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 this happens, this happens, this happens. He will glide over some of this stuff. So it's, for me, it's like I'm always coming back to King, just sort of, like, to remind myself, buckle down, write the everyday, step-by-step stuff. Okay, now I've done that way too much and I'm fucking it up. I've got to jump forward and be a writer (laughs) now and not just someone transcribing a character's imaginary life. So yeah, I mean, King means an enormous amount to me as as a writer and and just as a a person with a career and a life. Good answer. I think you might get in trouble for uh, using the wrong term for little people. Uh, Oh, crap. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) we're not taking it from a place of hate. This is usually the part in the show where we allow our guests to sort of pitch whatever they've got coming up the pipe. And we already did that a little up front, but you know, go ahead and tell us about the, uh, the new book. Yeah. So the final girl support group is my next novel. And it's really like, you know, I started writing it in 2013 and it just, my publisher rejected it, had no interest in it for a while. And I, I wound up taking it to a new publisher. It's been dead. It's been alive. It's kind of like Jason. Now it's a zombie. Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, and it, and basically it's about um I was really fascinated by what by final girls and wanting to take them seriously. You know, that woman who survives a horror movie and it's like, well, what happens next? I'm always like, what's it like when the worst thing that's ever gonna happen to you has happened and you're 16 years old? And how do you live your life in that shadow? And the fact that there could always be a sequel, he could always come back again. And so it's about a support group for these women, and it's 20 years later, and, and a lot of them have moved on. They're all coping in different ways. And then someone starts to to kill them one by one and um nice and a big part of it was like i really was thinking about like you know what does it mean that i've spent 40 years of my life roughly consuming entertainment about people getting murdered like what what the hell is it what's wrong with me uh and i really really wanted to work through that in this book because because it didn't make me a bad person i don't think so i was like well what's that all about um and it was a hell of a lot of fun to write. I, I went through my phase I always do with a book where it seems like a great idea. Then I spend a long time hating it, and it is a truly terrible idea. And then at the end, I managed to find the fun in it again, and really, you know, and that takes me over the finish line. And so it was a lot of fun to write. But yeah, hopefully there's an announcement about what we're doing with it for film and television soon. Um, and if people want information about it, just GradyHendrix.com is where you can find all the dumb junk in my life. Is if horror you, store still getting an adaptation? You know, the yeah, last actually, time I heard I'm writing. Yeah. I'm writing the screenplay for horror store, a uh, new Republic who did black Swan in 1917 and all that stuff. They're 
doing it as a feature film. And so I'm oh, nice. in the middle of the screenplay right now. And I got to tell you, man, if you ever want to realize how bad a book you've written is like, or, or like any <laughs> shortcuts or cheats or anything you did in a book, write the screenplay of it. Cause screenplays are unforgiving. And like, <laughs> it's been so hard doing this thing, but, but really eye opening. I saw that the audiobook for that one, one of the uh, one of the narrators was Bronson Pinchot. Is that correct? Yes, they got Bronson Pinchot to do part of the the audio book. So, uh, but he's great. Oh yeah, we're uh, we're big uh, fans of the Pinch around here at the Kingcast. <laughs> you know, thanks to his his role in uh, the Langoliers and oh, well, that's right. Also, I forgot he was in that. Yeah, Craig Toomey ripping up his little papers. Uh, yeah, but also about that girl. <laughs> hey i got a question for y'all actually because y'all mm-hmm, have seen sure. way more of the movies than i have if you were going to make a, a pitch for what to someone who's unconvinced of what the underrated neglected stephen king adaptation is that's truly great what would it be tv or film because hmm. i'm always like curious well we got a few examples in both um I can tell you from our experience revisiting and this isn't an adaptation I guess so it doesn't really count but revisiting uh Storm of the Century was really eye opening for me cuz I'd kind of written it off um and mm-hmm. and when I watched it I was just like this is like legit some of my favorite king on TV ever it was a mini series that he or a yeah like a limited yeah. series that he wrote um but it was the big draw was that he had written a brand new story only for tv and it wasn't based on a on a on a book so that jumped to mind scott do you have do you have one one is not immediately leaping to mind usually i mean let's be frank usually it's the other way around it's not that that one is like an unsung hero of uh king on film usually it's like well the book was great but the movie sucked you know (laughs) there's a lot more examples of that than than there are the uh the opposite so And, and from a box office point of view like dr sleep could fall into that category where people just kind of yeah, shrugged at it i'll go to the initially bat. yeah yeah i'll go to, i'll go to bat for dr sleep on that one because I, I i did not like that book and um i loved the movie and really because i'm in the same yeah I'm, okay for me the movie fixed the problems that i had with the book you know by and by and specifically by bridging the gap between you know the kubrick version of the shining and king's dr sleep uh, that's what worked for me. And I also just think, you know, Mike uh, Flanagan is phenomenal when it comes to adapting King stuff. To that end, in fact, I would also say Gerald's Game is another one. Gerald's Game is a fucking miracle movie. There is no way that should have worked. And he <laughs> nailed it. It is it is outstanding. And for the old school stuff, I know revisiting Cujo, we were both like pleasantly surprised at how well that one held up. Yeah, uh, people kind of take that yeah. one for granted. You know, kind of, but it's not it's never brought up in the same breath as as like, you know, the best of King stuff. And I mean, legit, it isn't like it wouldn't be in the top five, but I think it might crack the top 10. Matter of fact, I think we named it in the top 10, didn't we? We did a we did our our list for Entertainment Weekly for the King adaptations. Right. And uh, we kind of (laughs) wedged wedged Cujo in there towards the end. Um, well, yeah. Do any of those answers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because I definitely want to check out Storm of the Century just because I've always circled around it because King wrote the script for that. And I'm always kind of yes. fascinated by what he writes. Um, 
The Cujo thing's interesting because I think the book is tremendously underrated as well in the sense that mm. people are like, oh, that's the one he was too stoned to remember writing. Like that's what people's takeaway is about Cujo. And I think it's mm. I think it's one of his I think it's maybe his best book in terms of sort of writing literary kind of writing. You know what I mean? Like the best mm-hmm. book that sort of it could make a play for being literary fiction, I think, is Cujo. Um Although I got to say those stills, those behind the scene production stills where you see that Cujo was played sometimes by a stuntman in a dog suit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, anything else? I think that's it. That's all I got, man. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Grady. I'm glad we got to get this one out of our systems. Uh, Hopefully there'll be a movie adaptation uh, for us to talk about sometime soon, but this will do nicely until then, I think. And uh, Eric, that wasn't as as contentious as you expected it to be. Right. I think we all agreed on almost everything. It's just uh, you guys were giving it a lot more more chance than than uh, I was willing to on my reads. And but I appreciate it. And I also you know would like to say that even though I didn't particularly care for this book, like I have no issue with anybody who digs it. And we've had a lot of Kingcast listeners. Um, you know, tweeted us about their appreciation of it. And I do, as somebody who isn't a huge Temple of Doom fan, I will always appreciate kind of <laughs> going to bat for things that, you know, kind of the underdog, you know, stories and the underdog entries from from uh, your favorite, you know, uh, storytellers. So I will, you know, I, I just want to put it out there that even though I didn't like it, I'm totally down with everybody who, who really digs it and don't want to rain on anybody's parade. Mm-hmm. You've told me privately off the air that you will personally fight everyone who does, uh, who likes. This oh movie. yeah. So I'm, bare knuckle. I'm, I'm finding that Whoa. hard to believe, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> but Grady, thank you so much for being here today. This was a, a delight and, uh, we're looking forward to reading the next book. Thanks. Thanks for having me y'all. Many thanks to Grady Hendricks for joining us to finally tackle from a Buick eight. And as we say at the kind of the end of the episode, it's even though we are all on different sides of this uh, kind of opinion battle, like we all weirdly agree about everything. It's just about the level of uh, uh, how much do we like those things? Yes. And yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I went in there ready to like, you know, throw fists and get down and dirty, but uh, you guys were just making uh, too many good points for me to, totally fight you on <laughs> on your opinion on this uh, contentious book well as we know all my points are good and it's it's hard to argue with them frankly that's true it mm. is hard to argue with scott <laughs> digging those little heels right oh yeah he just pulls out his monkey outfit and he's so cute and i'm like well can't argue with that guy look at that guy yeah. the, we have the not introduced guy. the monkey costume to king cast lore yet but we'll get there one day <laughs> um Let's uh, let's talk about what we're doing next week. What do we got lined up next week? Ooh, so next week we are returning to Castle Rock to welcome Mr. Leland Gaunt back into the fold. And you know what that means. We're talking about needful things again. And I am very excited to dig into this one. This is a, a book that was a big kind of meaningful book for me in my personal King development because it was like brand new on the shelves when I was really getting into Stephen King. So even though it's kind of a, a little bit of an, of an inflated book and the movie isn't the best adaptation there, I'm very nostalgic for both. It holds a special mm-hmm. place in my heart for, mm-hmm. for me. So I'm very excited to dig in. I did cover this title once before, but that, that was notoriously the episode where I drank a bottle of champagne on the air Yep, and it got derailed to a degree that, I'm almost barely counting it as having done 
needful things on this show. <laughs> you know yet, what I mean? And yet you put out a poll on Twitter, like uh, about wanting listeners to tell us about what their favorite episodes uh, have been. I know. And needful <laughs> things made like 80% of, uh, of, uh, of those lists of people it responding was, to the top five. It was entertaining to listen to. I will grant you that, but uh, perhaps not the most representative episode for that, that title. <laughs> I think well, we could respect the needful things a little bit more. So. And I, I can't guarantee you we will because we haven't recorded this. We're supposed to be recording this episode tomorrow. So Correct. Uh, God only knows what uh, uh, what this episode will turn into or devolve into. But uh, our guest is somebody that I'm very excited to have on the show. She's a director. Uh, she knows her shit. And uh, she's apparently been promising that she, she's got a, a cool angle on this. So I'm very excited to yes. ha- record this episode. So, but I can't guarantee you it's not going to devolve into chaos. It tends to happen sometimes. I don't know. It does. And if one of us gets hit by a car in the next 24 hours or, you know, thrown off a bridge mm. or poisoned or hit by lightning or comes down with some advanced new previously undiscovered variant of uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. That might also change uh, <laughs> yeah. the course of the main feed next week, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. For sure. One uh, thing I'm really excited to talk about, though, is what we're doing on the Patreon this mm, Friday. Me Let's, too. You take the lead on this. Oh, man. So uh, I am a nerd and have been a nerd my entire life, but I've never been a nerd that's played RPGs, like kind of tabletop uh, Dungeons and Dragons style thing, but that all changes this week. Matter of fact, we're a few hours away from recording this. We are doing a Stephen King themed RPG, and it's going to be me, Scott, and Mallory O'Mara, and we are doing a, uh, a kind of a D and D style campaign. It'll be a, a hopefully a continuing adventure that we release maybe once every few weeks or a month uh, on the Patreon. Uh, and it will be uh, run by our good friend, Mr. Jacob Hull, who is the head honcho at Slash Film these days. And he knows what he's doing. I'm so excited to finally dive into this. I've listened to multiple podcasts that follow D&D campaigns like Nerd Poker, which is Brian Posehn's show, The Adventure Zone from the McElroy brothers. It's uh, it's something that I've been very interested in trying, but I've never once done it. And I'm so excited that uh, that we're all doing this together and building up a like a little Stephen King themed uh, D and yeah. story that hopefully is entertaining for for the listeners. Yeah, Jacob uh, oversaw the the construction of this entire game world, and um, he's given us some very basic instructions. As as Eric mentioned a moment ago, we have not recorded this yet. We're doing it tonight. Uh, I too am excited. My limited with tabletop RPGs is not quite zero, but might as well be there. And Mallory is somehow perhaps even more excited than both of us. She's been <laughs> doing research and sending us links about all kinds of stuff that will be relevant to the game. Hopefully this works out and uh, hopefully you guys are as excited about it as we are, because I think like a, a Stephen King RPG that's been written just for this show is a, a really cool idea. And uh, mm-hmm. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Yep. I'm very psyched. I've ordered some uh, little baggie of dye that's supposed to be delivered any moment now. It's uh, it's uh, I'm going full, full on nerd with it and uh, I couldn't be happier about it. So I can't wait for everybody to hear the, uh, the episode. I can't wait to do it. Hopefully it turns out well, but uh, that is what will be on our Patreon this Friday. So you want to make sure you're signed up. That's uh, patreon.com slash the King cast. And you will hear this weird adventure. We're about to go on. Indeed. 
until then, folks, we will uh, we will talk to you later. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 